Well, we've been uh, looking at uh, what what is church, and I didn't change the title slide, so that's not what we're talking about today. But you should go back and watch that last week because it forms a foundation for our message. But before we get into teaching, I want to um, share a little bit of information and talk maybe a little bit just about what's going on in, in Israel. So first piece of information, some sad news. Uh, some of you will uh, remember Dave Bell, David Bell, who is a longtime member here. Uh, he passed away just after midnight um, this morning. So if you can be in prayer for his family, for those of you who, who know him or remember him, there'll be more information as we uh, get it over the next um, uh, few days. So uh, you may have differing opinions about what's going on in Israel and Palestine. If you are um, uh, more of a student of Bible prophecy, you might be looking at things and how they might line up with Jesus' return. And I just want to share a few thoughts um, this morning um, based on insights I understand and give you a few of my opinions. If you differ on some things, that's okay. We can talk about that. I'm not necessarily right on everything. But the purpose of biblical prophecy, Old Testament and New Testament, there's one singular purpose behind it, and it's not to let us know exactly how things will unfold. Because person after person after person has guessed at the date of Jesus' return, or how it will come, or who will be this world power, or Antichrist, or all these different metaphors and images in, in uh, Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. People over the centuries, not just in our century, but the centuries since Jesus' ascension, have attached names and dates and countries and nations and all sorts of things, and every single one of them has been wrong. And the singular purpose of biblical prophecy, Jesus tells us, it's for hope. He says, I'm telling you those, these things so that you will recognize what's happening when it begins to happen. Just as, and listen, I don't know what this is like, I'm not claiming I know anything about this, but it's like the birth pains of a mother about to give birth. You know generally the due date, even with all our technology. We cannot predict with absolute certainty when a baby will be born, how he or she will be born, all the circumstances. We can predict better, but we can't tell exactly. And so Jesus says, you will see some things start to take place in the world. And he points back to some Old Testament things. And he says, the purpose of all this isn't so you'll know isn't so you'll watch a Bible teacher on the TV or read stuff on the internet and say, I know exactly what's happening. It's so that we have hope. And here's how we mess up hope. We mess up hope in the church by saying, I know what's happening. I have a home. I have a place. I know Jesus is returning soon. I know there's lots of scary things going on. It doesn't matter about your eschatology, your end time stuff, whether you believe the church will go through a time of persecution or not, whether you believe in rapture or not. It doesn't matter about any of those things. If your perspective in hope with Jesus is to worry about yourself and where you're going and having peace, you've missed Jesus' whole point. He says in Matthew 24, look, I'm telling you those these things so that you'll recognize them so that you'll bring more and more people. The point of biblical prophecy and whatever, however you view the conflict in Israel, what seems to fall in line with a few things um, with the return of Jesus and we don't know if it's now or every generation of believers believed they were the last. So should we. We should always be ready. So it shouldn't be that we see these things happening and then we get our house in order and, you know, Jesus is coming, I better tie my life up. 
Our life should already be tidied up. We should already be pursuing Jesus so that we live in such a way as to bring more and more people to him. So that when he returns in the twinkling of an eye, a date, time, and way that no one can predict except the Father, not even Jesus himself, everyone's ready. So that's my encouragement to you, that you wouldn't be worried, you wouldn't be terrified, you wouldn't follow things online of people who say, well, this is exactly what it's going to happen. We'll really only know after, <laughs> after things fall into place, and we can say, oh, yeah, that falls in line. The point is that we follow Jesus well, and that's the point of this morning. Now, in March of 2020, uh, I was looking back in our YouTube and watching the video that I posted on March 14th to say, you know, the schools have been shut down, there's mandates, and there's all sorts of stuff happening. We've made the choice as a church not to have in-person gatherings, either on-site or off-site, uh, for a time. We thought, and everyone kind of thought it'd be a couple weeks, right? And just make it past that too, a couple more weeks. And we went through two years of all sorts of different abilities to gather and not. We followed the guidelines as best we could here at Country Hills Church. And over that time, we asked a really important question we'd forgotten to ask for, I think, a long time. What is church? And that question kind of resonated in uh, throughout the world. And I was on all sorts of webinars and talking to all sorts of pastors and church leaders and uh, church people about what is church? What does it mean to be church? Uh, do you have to gather in person? Is online the same thing? Am I the church on my own? What is church? And what bubbled to the surface more than all the great answers we discovered through there that actually shape who we are today? Above anything else, what was very clear to me, and I think to others, was whether people who had been involved in church before a pandemic saw and understood themselves as the church, that they are the church, or whether they saw themselves as someone who attends a program at a church. It became very clear who believed they were the church, still are, or I go to church and so now that things have changed, I better try and hustle and work hard to get it back to the way it was because church is attending something. Now Saul, also known as Paul in the New Testament, understood all the way along that he was the church. Church just meaning, uh, you know, gathering of, of people who follow Jesus. And in Acts chapter 9, uh, shortly after Paul has had a miraculous salvation experience on the road to Damascus with Jesus, he encounters Jesus and he goes blind, and a whole bunch of other things happen. And after he turns his life over to Jesus, dramatically he begins teaching, and he begins preaching about the gospel. And the place he's in, he's persecuted, and they have to hurry him away because his life is in danger. And he ends up in Jerusalem, which is the center of Jesus' movement. Those people were known as the people of the way. That's how they were first known. And Jerusalem was the hub because that's where the Holy Spirit was poured out, and that's where most Jewish believers, followers of Jesus were, and it began to spread. And so Paul ends up in Jerusalem, and the, the church at the time, the, the people of the way are, you know, reasonably afraid of this guy who'd been persecuting the church, and, and they don't want to let him into their meetings and their gatherings, and a, a fellow by the name of Barnabas takes him under his wing, brings him in, and they begin to see that, yes, this in fact is real. And Paul, again, in Jerusalem, is gathering and meeting with the apostles, meaning the twelve that Jesus chose, minus Judas, plus his replacement that God chose, Matthias. 
and he's meeting with the apostles, and he's meeting with all the believers and people. He's having lots of gatherings, and he's preaching and teaching in Jerusalem, and God is performing miracles through him, and his life becomes in danger again. And here's what we read in Acts 9.31. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. It became stronger as the believers lived in fear of the Lord, and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers. So as Paul gathered with other believers, numbers were growing and growing and growing. And so we see that Paul, when he's gathering with the main gathering of believers, God is working through him. And he is being the church. But then by Acts 27, we see that Paul's been out on his own for a little while. And in fact, he's always in trouble, this Paul guy, right? Because he's preaching for Jesus. And he's in trouble again. And he is uh, captured and he's sent to trial in Rome. In fact, Paul kind of orchestrates that a little bit because he's a Roman citizen. And he's sent on a ship that ends up running aground off the island of Malta. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he's adrift at sea for a day and a night, and eventually uh, everyone uh, get, gets to shore and they land on shore. And Paul is bitten by a poisonous snake. He should have died, but God miraculously allows him not to be even impacted by that at all. And once again, Paul is preaching and teaching, and God's doing miracles through him, such that the father of the chief administrator of that island is sick, and Paul prays for him and heals him. And we see that Paul in that situation, far away from any other followers of Jesus, all on his own, he's doing the same thing there as he did in Jerusalem. And we see these two extremes of Paul being the church. God is working through him in the same way. Paul is living and loving Jesus and bringing others to him as best he can in both situations, these extremes. But why is it that he understood that he was the church, whether he's gathered with other followers of Jesus or whether he's on his own. I think in part because of what we see happen in Acts 13, 1 to 3. It reads this. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas. There's that Barnabas guy. Simeon called the black man Lucius from Cyrene. Manan, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas. So these are... Uh, uh, Luke, who's the author of Acts, is listing off people that those who read this would have known. These were well-known people within the church. So these people were all gathered and Saul. Verse 2, one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work for which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, verse 3, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Paul, or Saul, was sent out by the church. Now, it wasn't just that he was sent out that he viewed himself as working as part of the church, but that, that, was, a, that was a really important part of it, a reminder. And so Paul was commissioned out, and he understood that no matter where he was before that commissioning, during that commissioning, that he was a part of the church. And elsewhere, he uses the examples or the illustrations in his letters of the body. He knew the church was a body with many parts. Everyone has their part to play. He understood that the church is living stones making up a living new temple. And he understood the best metaphor, and we talked about this last week for the church, which is the family. He was the fam part of the family of God. And last week, as we learned that, we saw that God is referred to as Abba, Daddy, Father, by Jesus and, and others. That's who we are. God is our Father. Those who have um, 
believed in Jesus, received forgiveness, and decide to follow him are made completely new. We're in a new family. And so in this family, we have one father, and we're all brothers and sisters, regardless of background, of our calling, of who we are. We're all equally brothers and sisters in this family. And so that is by far the, the most widely used metaphor to understand what the church is, that we are a family. And so we at Country Hills refer to ourselves as a church family. But here's the question, because all over the past few weeks we've been looking at, you know, what is God calling us to and some of the values we want to see happen here because values determine behavior. What you value, that's how you will act. That's, that's what you'll do. So how does this all work together? If we were to, so I'll, I'll, I'll talk to those kind of over 40, all right? If we're to take a snapshot, those over 40 you know what a snapshot is, right? If you take a snapshot of when the church is being effective, a great church, what would that look like? Under 40, if you take a screenshot, okay? Screenshot of what the church looks like when it's doing well, when it's great, what on earth would that look like? Well, here's the reality. Jesus, before he left, gave us a great commission. Not us, particularly at Country Hills, but us as his followers for all all time. And in Matthew 28, he says this, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, in that authority, I authorize you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. At Country Hills, we say that whole thing like this, people helping people follow Jesus. We're just simply trying to follow the Great Commission. The reality is that every local church gathering all does the same thing. Since the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost to now, we all do the same things. We just do them a little bit different. I'll explain why I think that is. But let's rewind a little bit and see how that first early church, the gathering in Jerusalem, was like. In Acts 2, 42 to 47, tells us that, what this great commission group of people filled with the Holy Spirit looked like. All the believers, verse 42, and I highlighted some, uh, some bits and pieces that we should pay attention. All the believers were devoted to themselves, to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them, and all the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, and they met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Every church including that church, does the same kinds of things. We do things like teaching and fellowship and worship and care and outreach. We do these things, although we each look a little bit different. And they also did them in different places, just like Paul. We read that they met in the temple, because they didn't really have church buildings or anything yet. They met in the temple or in synagogues because the first followers of Jesus were Jewish, and that's what they knew but they also met in homes. So there are these kind of four different areas of followers of Jesus, of people of the way. We had the, the global church, right? The full family of God. 
And then we have local church gatherings who would gather in the temple or synagogues, everyone together for teaching and all sorts of things. And then they met in homes. And then out of those homes, when they weren't in smaller groups, they just lived their life for Jesus as individuals and as households. Now, after the day of Pentecost, the early church continued to add to his number. So remember that, uh, the end of verse 47 there, where it says, and the Lord added to their numbers daily. Fast forward a couple chapters, a few chapters in Acts 5. Uh, the apostles, the 12, they're teaching and preaching. And they get themselves in some hot water with the Jewish religious leaders who say, don't preach and teach in that name of Jesus anymore. You're drawing people away from us. So they capture them. They lock them up, they flog them, they beat them, they bring them before the Jewish religious high council, and they tell them and warn them, do not preach in the name of Jesus of Nazareth anymore. And of course, the apostles say, no thank you, <laughs> we'll keep doing that. And they're released, and as they're released, they give praise for being counted worthy of being persecuted for the name. And then in verse 42, we read this. And every day in the temple, this should sound familiar, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. So the temple we might understand, right? We get that. It's temple building, synagogue stuff. But this house to house thing, like we've looked at over the past few weeks, Greek words and Hebrew words hold a little more meaning under the surface than our simple English translations convey. And this house to house term it holds a whole lot more. Uh, the Hebrew idea for that would be the word Beth, the, the Jewish Hebrew word. The Greek word that's used in the Greek New Testament there and all over the place in the New Testament is the term oikos. And we need to understand that term oikos to understand what's really going on here, to look a little bit deeper beneath the surface. So, uh, as a church, as a church family, we want to be an oikos or a Beth, a spiritual oikos, a spiritual Beth. Oikos is that Greek word that's used in the New Testament, and it's, it's taken from the Greek Greco-Roman society, and Beth is taken from the Jewish society and their history and how they lived in that time. So we don't get this term oikos, and we see house to house or home. We think one thing, but they would have thought something completely different. And when that word oikos was used in speech, in that culture, or in the New Testament, it's interchangeable between the building, so like the, the house itself, so I'm going to the house, so when it said that in Acts 5, they went house to house, yeah, it means the house, but it also meant the people living there. It was interchangeable. And so it meant those who were a part of that household. And so house to house is a little misleading. It's not just the building to building. It's, it's the group of people in that home, that household, that that family, the word was going from house to house. Now, we might not understand what that is, so let me help you understand this Greco-Roman idea of oikos and this Hebrew idea of Beth. For us, our home or our family generally, mainly, uh, for, for many, refers to our immediate family. The mom, the dad, the kids, those who are adopted in, step family, it's that immediate family. Now, some people will extend that a little bit to maybe extended family. Maybe you've got a, a grandparent living with you or there's someone who needs help. So, you know, cousin over here is going to university and they have a, a room downstairs. But, you know, that, that's the, the son of, you know, a, a, 
my uncle, you know, and so they're part of the family, but they're not totally part of the family. That's not the way it went in the Roman society. In New Testament Jerusalem, when they viewed an oikos, a household, it included not only your immediate family, not only your extended family, but often others, friends, neighbors, people, because it made good sense to have as many people on your side as possible in that kind of a society. And so oikos predominantly existed for two reasons, for protection and provision. So if it's just, you know, take my family, for example. I have a wife, Stephanie. I have three kids, Alyssa, Caitlin, and Wesley. If it's just the, three, uh, just the five of us and uh, I get sick and I can't make money, there's no one other else, we're in a lot of trouble if those are little kids and my wife doesn't have means to, in ancient Jerusalem, make money. We're, we're in a lot of trouble. If there's just the five of us in the house and robbers or thieves come knocking and, and I'm, you know I could take them, right? I, I look pretty, I'm not tough at all. Like, I'm not tough at all, right? My family's in a lot of trouble. But for the oikos, they would gather more people. It made sense financially. It made sense for provisions. You'd have more people to bring into the home, run the family business, run the family farm, all of those things. And so an oikos was more than just our immediate family. Jesus did something interesting with that idea of oikos, and it's why we find it throughout the New Testament. Now, I can't refer you to a passage in the New Testament where Jesus teaches oikos and says, here's how you're going to treat your spiritual family now and your household. It's kind of like the Trinity. You won't find a passage that specifically lays out the theology of the Trinity, but it's right from the beginning to the end, and we, we piece it together very clearly, and it's a clear doctrine. And I think this idea of oikos is as well. But with Jesus, it's different. You see, in, in that society, whether you're Hebrew or you're Greek or you're Roman, the oikos is about a closed door, right? Protection and provision. It's us. It's us against the world. Now, they had a great sense of community, and so their fellow Jews, they get along with their fellow Greeks. When you brought Greeks and Jews together, just read the first part of Ephesians, and you find out how difficult that was to bring these two cultures and societies, non-Jewish believers. It was very difficult. So they were open to their countrymen. They were open to fellow people around, but still there was a sense that like your, your household is, is yours to care for. And Jesus turned that on the head, on its head. Because instead of having a closed door in your oikos for protection and provision, that, yeah, you'd share with a neighbor and it was expected, but it's still you first. He opened that door. And that doorway to your household, to your oikos, to your spiritual family, was to swing both ways. Jesus said it like this in several parables, where there was a great feast prepared for the kingdom of God. That's the illustration he's giving. And while most people would go and invite, you know, um, honored neighbors and people from the community, people who are of importance to the feast, and it was quite important to sit at the right hand of the host and all of these things, Jesus said, none of that matters. In my kingdom, in my feast, go out to the alleyways and the back roads and gather up all those who are on the outside, all those who seem unworthy, the sick, the lame, the poor, the forgotten about, they're having a part in my kingdom too. 
And so the spiritual oikos, the family of God, and we can talk about it as, let's just say, local church, was a place that we would gather to train and become more like Jesus in the same way that your household, you're trying to train up your kids to live well for Jesus and be good, productive members of society. You're trying to teach them, you know, not to steal gas when you're at the gas pump and maybe punching a teacher in the face is a bad thing and all this kind of stuff. And, and you're trying to raise them a certain way in your household, in your oikos. We do the same thing spiritually in our spiritual lives. We're being raised up to learn. We're people helping people follow Jesus. But it's not so that we can have a good experience. We want a good worship experience, and we want a good warm-hearted church, and those are all nice things. But the purpose of growing in Jesus and becoming a close-knit family and having provision and protection by means of supporting one another and people who are praying for you and all of those things, all the stuff we read in Acts 2, the purpose of that is so that you would be sent out of the doorway back into your homes and lives, your own households, so that you could live in such a way to bring more people back in. So they might be trained up and go out and bring more in. So they might be trained up and go out and bring more in. It's a welcoming and ascending rhythm in this church family. God's kingdom, God's kingdom is a spiritual family of families. You're all from a household. It's a spiritual household of households. doesn't matter if you're single, married, if you've got some brokenness in your family, if you've got extended family in your household, whatever your household looks like, you are part of God's household of households. It's an oikos of oikos. It's a Beth of Beths. And our hope here at Country Hills Church is that this church family, this spiritual oikos, this is what it might look like. That we would be a church family that people want to be a part of. Okay, so we want to be a church family that people would be, uh, want to be a part of and uh, that has a positive impact on the world. And a place where we can find healing, growth, where we thrive and where we raise up spiritual leaders. So really, a, a, a snapshot, a screenshot of Country Hills at its best. We want to be a place that people want to be a part of. We want people to come in. Some of you are guests for the first day today online and in person. We don't want you to f come in and feel, man, those people are harsh. They're a mess. They're mean. <laughs> we, want to, we want to be a place that people that you want to be a part of because we have an open door. And we want to have a positive impact on the world because it's not just about what we do for ourselves. Although that's where it begins. We begin by learning to love one another, learning to take care of the needs here with one another. So we learn those things so we can do it better when we go out of our gatherings to our own households, a household of households. We want to be a place to grow and heal and thrive. That's why we offer things like emotionally healthy relationships and seminars and prayer nights and small groups and things that are different than just me teaching at you and you going, I like that. I think I'll apply that. Or I disagree. I'm leaving. Whatever it might be. You get, you get involved with others and you learn to practice these things. So we want to be a place to heal and grow. We also want to be a place that raises up spiritual leaders. So let's just break that apart a little bit. So a church family that people want to be a part of we want to be welcoming. It's this, this door. We're, we're to be welcoming. Jesus said we will be known by our love. That's the atmosphere we want to have 
here. We want to be a church family with a positive impact on the world. Let me just pause here for a minute and talk about Candy Carnival. Um, so Candy Carnival is Halloween night. We open up here. We get some bouncy houses, some candy, some games. Uh, let me tell you what it's not so you can understand what it is so I can encourage you to get involved if you're not. It is not an alternative to Halloween. Halloween's full of lots of dark stuff and you should you know, teach your kids and what to stay away from and what to watch and not watch. Absolutely. But Candy Carnival is not a safe place away from a dark world. Candy Carnival is to be a light in a dark world. And you be light however you feel you need to be light. And if that's going trick-or-treating with your kids and other families so you can have a night with neighbors who don't know Jesus and you can have a positive impact on them, that's wonderful. But why not consider coming here in addition to that? If, if you haven't donated candy, part of Candy Carnival is having candy so that our neighborhood will come in and we could just bless them. Why? Just because we do. We're glad to be a part of this neighborhood and the community of Kitchener. And our hope is that when people come in, they will find Country Hills Church people with their backs turned to everyone, a group of three talking, 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 and we have a really good night as church family, and we ignore all the people from the community who come in. What we want to happen is that we have piles of candy to give to our community, and people come in and experience church family for the first time. Church family isn't just what happens on Sundays. It happens all the time, just like Paul knew. It wasn't just in Jerusalem. It's while he's floating on a piece of wood off the island of Malta telling everybody, it's okay. God's got this. None of us are going to die. And so I encourage you, give candy. Volunteer. Be a part of it. It might seem like something small. But you don't know what that seed, what that seed of a friendly smile, of greeting someone, talking, getting to know another family, another household might do. So that's what we want to be. We want to be a place to heal, grow, and thrive. The, the biblical term for that is discipleship, people helping people follow Jesus. We get involved in one another's lives and, and programs and, and uh, smaller groups, groups two and three, small groups, larger groups, and outside our gatherings and programs because we want to learn and be in a process of spiritual maturity that needs to take place in relationship. You, you, you do have a personal relationship with Jesus. Spending quiet time with the Lord is ultimately important, but that has to be backed up with others you're walking with to help you mature and grow, and where you are helping others mature and grow as well. That's discipleship. Barnabas found Paul, helped him. Paul had a Timothy, a young man he raised up as spiritual leaders, and that's our final piece. We really want to be a place where we raise up spiritual leaders, next generation, whether they're young in age or young in faith, that we'd be a part of helping people find their place and their fit uh, to do and be who God has called us to be. So we are not there yet, but we're trying to intentionally do these things as a church family. I would rather have the idea of being a church family together than have all our programs and uh, packaged goods together. We're learning this as we go. It's fluid and, and we'll change wording and things like that. Uh, uh, the vision statement or how it's formed is not the most important thing. Uh, what we really want to do is, is to be understanding our values so that what we do in here matters. Because what we do together in our gatherings Really, we just have chosen that we're going to focus on three things. Those three things are helping one another become more like Jesus. So that's first B. And we have to do that 
in relationships, so we want people to belong. Like, we want to be family. We want you to feel like you belong here, and we want you to discover the joy of blessing others, serving and blessing. We could do a hundred other things. The church down the road, churches around, they'll do a hundred different things. We're all doing the same thing. We just do it in different ways. Why? Because churches are like people, local churches. God gifts them differently. We're planted in a different uh, building, community, different people than other churches. We're not in competition. We're all doing the same thing together. I'm part of something called One Church, where I gather with other church leaders from KW once a month to learn and pray and be together. We're all doing the same thing together. We'll just do it uniquely here because God has gifted us with this church family, this oikos. He's gifted us with these resources, and he's planted us in this community and wherever your household is, your job, your school, who you hang out with, all of those things, your extended, extended family, that's all who God has planted you to have this door welcoming and sending. So here's a simple way to think of what it looks like when it's working. Everyone intentionally helping someone to find and follow Jesus. That's it. If you can remember that, you're golden. Do that. Everyone, a part of Country Hills, is intentionally, doing something intentionally, making it happen to help someone find and follow Jesus. You can do that through programs and opportunities. All programs and gatherings and opportunities are is organized ways of what you're supposed to do on your own anyway. So for example, teaching. I mean, I could come to each of your houses once a week. I don't think you'd want that. I don't, there's not enough of me to sit down and talk about the Bible. And I, I'm not above you. You can learn the same as I do. I just might have some insight and we could talk together. That's not going to work. So we gather at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning because it works well and it's organized. We don't have to gather. We can do it apart. But we choose to gather and we choose to have these opportunities to help people find Jesus and help people follow him. Maybe you're a visual learner. This is something we put together this past year. Uh, you'll see on the screen here uh, with the house on the left side. So this is kind of that open door thing because you've got your houses on the right here. There's a school and a house where you work. Uh, all the places you live outside our gatherings. We want you to, to follow Jesus well. So we have this open door of welcoming and sending. And so um, you can click on that again, Ryan. I should have left that up a little bit more. Um, so there's these three kind of areas. So think of it like a house. The kitchen is where you train your kids to, to do something. They're learning a skill alongside them. So we learn skills. We're trained in how to follow Jesus. The living room is where you develop relationships. So I, I like to think of that sense of belonging. You play games, you do things, you develop relationships. And the dining room is kind of where it all comes together, right? So you're cooking a meal with your, your kids or someone else, you're teaching them, you've built relationships, and you sit down to a table to a meal. An art we've lost, pretty much, in our culture, but not in the New Testament culture. And then you would bring others into the home so they experience it too. This meal you've prepared with these relationships you have, and you're welcoming others in. You're blessing them. And that's kind of what we do here in our gatherings. We're just going to do those things to help you outside better follow Jesus. Uh, we could focus on a hundred other things. We're choosing not to. This is what we feel God is calling us to. So our church family is a spiritual household of households. It's a spiritual family of families. It's an oikos of oikoses. What happens here matters out there. Because you don't spend a lot of time here, do you? No, we don't. We don't spend a lot of time with our spiritual family, unlike in the New Testament. They spent a lot of time together. 
But what we teach here, the values we have, if you think of that picture, the values are to keep us doing those things. So transformation, we want to be a part of everything we do. We want to have grace with one another. We want to extend care to one another. And we want to see one another as family. Just having those values helps us keep doing the things we think God wants us to do. It's not a corporate plan. It's not a church growth plan. It's just hopefully a simple way to think about how we're supposed to operate as a family of God. So that in especially perilous times, whether you know, Jesus is coming tomorrow or in 50 or 500 years, we don't know. But we have opportunity to reach people. And our church family is key and important to that because we're trained up here to be sent out to welcome back in. There's a rhythm to it. There's a rhythm so that we live outside what matters in here. Everyone intentionally helping someone to find and follow Jesus. So here's the question I want to ask you. What are you doing today? Okay, what are you doing today to be the church? What are you doing today to be the church? And I threw Ryan off by, so you can go ahead a couple. There we go. What are you doing today to be the church? Remember Paul? He was the church. Okay, maybe that's volunteering in a program and an opportunity. Maybe just start by bringing candy. Candy Carnival is an awesome way to get involved with Country Hills as well. Because you get one night of being around others. Maybe you're running a game, meeting people, whatever it may be, donating candy. It's, it's low commitment, high impact. And so that's maybe a good way. Uh, maybe you're joining a small group or you come to services a bit more. You talk to the person in the row beside you instead of sitting. You know, whatever it might be, there are ways to be the church here together so that you can be the church at home and at work and at school and with your friends. That is the most important place to be the church. This has a purpose, but this is training ground and family and support to send you out to welcome back in. That's the way the New Testament did it, and I think that's the way we're supposed to be. So if we have a snapshot or a screenshot of where it's working well, of what Country Hills looks like, it would be a church family that people want to be a part of that's having a positive impact in, a, in the world. And it's a place where we heal, where we grow, where we thrive, a place that raises up spiritual leaders. So the question still remains, what are you doing today to be the church? So I want you to think about that. Is, is there a step that God wants you to take? In a few, few weeks, we're going to look a little bit more at some next steps in your life that you may need to take. But what, what is God putting on your heart? Are you being the church or are you attending a church, right? Are you being the church and part of being the church is part of this local church family, part of the family of God, a household of households, or are you attending a church or a church program. There's a big difference. And to the degree that we learn to live that and understand that, that's the same degree that we will be effective in bringing more and more people to Jesus so that when he comes, you know, I, I, I certainly hope that in some way, shape, or form about me and about our, our church, he'll say, well done. My children, my good and my faithful servants, you held important the things I held important. Would you stand with me as we pray?